Good afternoon. Happy October. Good to see many of you. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to John chapter 18. In 1906, the liberal theologian and conclusively a heretic, Albert Schweitzer, published his landmark book titled The Quest for the Historical Jesus. In it, Schweitzer concluded that Jesus was a mere man who was dominated by the expectations of the coming of God's kingdom. And how finally, in desperation, tried to force its coming by seeking his own death. To Schweitzer, and tragically to the thousands of people who subscribed to his erroneous theology, Jesus was a mistaken idealist, caught and crushed like a rag doll in the wheels of history, who died in confusion, despair, and rejection. And in many ways, the events of the closing days of the early life of Christianity's founder, Jesus of Nazareth, recorded in John chapters 18 through 19 and other Gospels, can seem like a grave tragedy. Taken out of its full context, chapters 1 through 17 and chapters 20 and 21, which follows, it can seem like that, like a tragedy. One commentator writes, a detached observer might look up these days as dismal in the extreme. A young man, a brilliant and compassionate young man, unjustly arrested, through the hostility of jealous older men whose authority he threatened. A man who was once welcomed, followed, sought after, and praised by the crowds of thousands as a great prophet, now betrayed, abandoned, deserted, and alone. He is falsely convicted and executed, and even then the execution is not some humane form of execution, but by the unbelievably cruel an agonizing death of crucifixion. He hung till his death on a cold wooden cross. What could be worse? Yet the story, as told by his friends and witnesses who saw everything unfold, is that Jesus' story is not one of tragic defeat, but rather of victory. Indeed, the outcome, far from being one of despair and desolation, is actually a gospel which is good news to an otherwise tragedy-bound humanity. Furthermore, not only does the tragedy in the hands of God become triumph, without this tragedy, there really is no triumph at all. Another commentator writes, without these two chapters, chapters 18 and 19, none of the precious things which have thrilled the heart in the previous chapters would be possible. None of his own assertions as to what he would be and what he would do of giving eternal life of coming again for his people, of sending the Holy Spirit, of preparing a place for his people, of having them in glory with him, or of having that glory at all. There would be no assembly of God, no gathering of the nations, no new heavens and the new earth, no adjustment in righteousness of the creation of God of which he is the beginning, no display of grace, no salvation, no revelation of the Father. All these and more were contingent on his death and resurrection. Without these, all things in this book drop out and leave a blank. So praise the Lord for these chapters, chapters 18 and 19, for Jesus' suffering and glory. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John in our series titled, In the Beginning Was the Word. We started this study just as we covenanted together as a church on July of 2020. And the desire was initially and is that our church would be deeply and thoroughly established in God's word, in who Jesus is, 
and in his gospel. So we studied part one, signs, observing the seven miracles of Jesus, which showed that he was more than just a prophet. And in part two, sayings, when we studied the seven I am sayings of Jesus, which provide proof that he was the Messiah last fall and winter. And we'll be finishing up part three, suffering and glory this fall and winter. The purpose of John's gospel is explicitly stated in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these particular signs, these specific sayings, these sequences of events which recount the sufferings of Jesus is meant to show us how through the Son of God, sinners like you and me can be saved and have life in his name. Brothers and sisters, the passage we have before us today seems initially to us as a tragedy, as a depressing defeat. But what irony of ironies, what shocking and amazing reversal, what seemed to the watching world a great debacle and the downfall of Jesus was actually God's grand plan of redemption coming to its final fulfillment. Something about the events of Jesus' last days proved who he was even more clearly, and hundreds of people witnessed it. Hundreds of people lived and even gave their lives to tell about it. So from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27, I want to share with you four hopeful ironies from the event of Jesus' betrayal. Four hopeful ironies. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, Jesus is betrayed, yet his divinity is confirmed. Verses 1 through 6. Jesus is betrayed, yet his divinity is confirmed. Point number two, Jesus is bound, yet he is sovereignly in control. Jesus is bound, yet he is sovereignly in control from verses 7 through 12. Point number three, Jesus is falsely accused, yet his death is predestined. Verses 13 through 18. Jesus is falsely accused, yet his death is predestined. And point number four, Jesus is denied. Jesus is denied, yet his promises are fulfilled from verses 19 through 27. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you afresh. In Christ, tragedy is turned to triumph. In Christ, dark and dire days of desperation prepares us for a bright future. In Christ, suffering produces glory. Amen? Friends and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. We've been praying for you. We pray that what you hear and gain from our service today is that none of this is possible if Jesus wasn't real. If Jesus was just a mere man, a good teacher or a prophet or an ancient philosopher of great influence, if that were the case, and millions of Christians around the world throughout the centuries would not worship him as our Savior, Lord, and King and claim that he has changed our lives completely, entirely. If Jesus was merely a self-deceived lunatic who died and did not rise again, none of this, none of what we're doing, none of what Christians are doing around the world would make sense. So we pray that you would come to know and believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls and a friend of sinners like you and me. So without further ado, please follow along in your Bibles. With your Bibles open for the entire duration of the message as I read and preach, our passage will be found on page 904 of the Blue Bibles around you. Page 904, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27 says this. 
When Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciples, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus by his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The first hopeful irony of our passage, point number one, Jesus is betrayed, yet his divinity is confirmed from verses one through six. Look with me again to verse one. It says this, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. The first observation we can make is that unlike the other gospel accounts, the details of Jesus' anguish in Gethsemane is not recorded here. In terms of chronology, there is a gap in timeline between verses 1 and 2. If you want to reference Matthew 26, verses 36 through 34, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42, and Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, uh, they are the parallel accounts and it details how Jesus became so sorrowful in what was about to happen 
that he pled the Father to let the cup of suffering pass from him. And rightly so, because what Jesus was about to experience would be the most devastating, tragic experience that anyone would ever experience. As one commentator writes, no one has ever known the sorrow our Lord experienced. So great was his agony as the coming dread engulfed him that he actually broke out in a bloody sweat. But even in the face of inevitable suffering, Jesus prays determined, not my will, but your will be done. And again, we are spared of the details of Jesus instructing the disciples to watch and pray with him, knowing exactly that the hour is at hand. But the point should be made that Jesus was so keenly aware of what hour it was which was soon to come that drove him to such grave anguish. In fact, we may even say his three-year public ministry was aimed for this particular hour. You see, in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says to his disciples, my time has not yet come. In John chapter 7, verse 30, it says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one could lay a hand on him because why? Because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, it says he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says specifically, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose. I have come to this hour. So the author of this gospel, John, not because he lacked the details. John the apostle was one of the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest to Jesus, who was invited to pray with Jesus in Gethsemane. Yet for the purpose in this book, the purpose of this book, again, it was to show who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God, so that we may believe in him and have life in his name. And so John focuses how this hour was one of divine design with much purpose. A bit more context is that John intends to show how these events were so full of significance and symbolism, how everything that was happening was uh, so rich with meaning, which were not accidental, random, or incidental, or as a result of Jesus' death at all. But every detail of the next hours would be the fulfillment of every foreshadowing, every promise and prophecy written in the Old Testament scriptures of how the Messiah would indeed be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so on this Passover night in Jerusalem, when more than 200,000 lambs would be slain and sacrificed in the Jewish temple, as was the tradition during this celebrated holiday, to remember God's past deliverance, when the Jews gathered from all over the known land to offer their worship to God as Jesus and his disciples walked toward Gethsemane, a drain which remained dry for most of the year, which ran from the temple altar to the Kidron Valley, Kidron Ravine, would be red, flowing with the blood of the sacrifices. And so we see how the events of this night would be the perfect setup for the perfect Passover lamb, the sinless Messiah, Jesus to be offered up to God as the ultimate and final sacrifice for sins. And so on this day, on this particular, through this particular event, the words of Zechariah 13.1 would be fulfilled, which says, on that day, a fountain will be opened up to the house of David and the people of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And that's exactly what the following verses shows us. Look with me to verses two and four. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. 
for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and to the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Without a doubt, brothers and sisters, the situation seemed grim. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Judas, who had traveled and lived with Jesus and the other 11 disciples for three whole years. They shared meals. They shared laughter. They shared hardships. Judas saw Jesus' great signs and heard Jesus' amazing sayings. Yet here tonight, on this night, Judas, a betrayer, a backstabber, a hypocrite, a deceiver, blinded by sin, and Satan's deceit for a measly 30 pieces of silver, which was actually another fulfillment of Scripture from Zechariah 11.13. But the main point I want you to see is this. What seemed to be an apparent betrayal? Do you see what kind of company Judas had procured? A band of soldiers? Uh, Officers from the chief priests and Pharisees with lanterns and torches and weapons? Was any of it necessary? Well, what we see is that Judas... And the religious leaders were not coming for a fair trial at all. They were coming for blood. They were coming to kill. Hence, the situation would have been suitably frightening and shocking and baffling all at the same time. Only, only except that Jesus had already predicted it. Not once, but twice in John chapter 13 verse 21 and in John 17 verse 12. Jesus had known of Judas' betrayal. Although not in John's gospel, I love Matthew's account. When Jesus confronts Judas to his face in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24 and 25, which says this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered. Judas says to Jesus, Is it I, Rabbi? And I love Jesus' answer. You said it. You said it. You know it. Not only that, Jesus had permitted it in John chapter 13, verse 27, when Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. This reality is confirmed by Scripture in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Brothers and sisters, what we see is that Jesus wasn't agonizing because of his arrest. Jesus wasn't sweating drops of blood because he was scared of these men. Jesus isn't running away. Jesus isn't cowering back. Follow how Jesus is fully the one in authority the entire time. Not the authorities, not Judas, not the officers, not the Pharisees. It says, Jesus came forward and asked, whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So again, do you see who is in charge here? He asks, they answer Now watch this. Not only is Jesus' authority displayed, his divinity is confirmed. You see, the religious leaders and the Pharisees were threatened by Jesus' miracles and teachings. They were so jealous of his massive popularity, they had accused him of blasphemy. They ridiculed him that he claimed to be the Son of God, which was claiming that he was God. You see, they didn't care for the truth because they were so blinded by their hatred and their greed to preserve their power. Yet we see at the end of verse 5 and 6 something very, very interesting, something so very certain they themselves, they themselves could not deny it. Three times the author John points out to confirm that his very own eyes had witnessed and heard. Jesus said to them, who do you seek? I am he. I am he. I am he. Three times 
literally meaning I am. Jesus was referring to himself back to the Old Testament. The I am who I am of the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. The I am who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who promised deliverance for God's people in Exodus 6.2. The I am the Lord who gives his glory to no other nor his praise to any other images according to Isaiah 42.8. The I am who is the bread of life in John 6, 25. The I am who is the light of the world according to John 8, 12. The I am who is the door of salvation in John 10, 9. The I am who is the good shepherd in John 10, 11. The I am who is the resurrection and the life in John 11, 25. The I am who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father according to John 14, 6. The I am who is the true vine in John 15, verse 1. Jesus was saying very clearly, very, very clearly, I am that I am. Well, you may say, what good, what worth are his claims? He's being arrested and being bound up in chains like a criminal. What good is it that he claims who he is? Well, look at their response. Observe the force of even the utterance of his name in verse 6. It says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, what happens? They drew back and they fell to the ground. They were literally taken aback. Are you picturing the scene? Can you sense his authority and divinity? As he comes forward, they draw backward. He pronounces his name. They fall to the ground. We don't know why or how they fell. Perhaps the power of his name simply put them to their knees or blew them off their feet, sending them sprawling to the ground. Or perhaps the pronouncement of his name elicited their worship. They prostrated themselves in awe. What is clear is the great irony. Jesus is betrayed. Yet again, his divinity is confirmed. Point number two, hopeful irony in the midst of seeming tragedy. Point number two, Jesus is bound, yet he is sovereignly in control. Look at verse seven again, it says this. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Why do you think Jesus repeatedly asks, whom do you seek? Jesus was clarifying for these men who are so blinded and deceived by Satan and their lust and thirst for blood that the person they came to seek was Jesus and not any other persons. You see, Jesus' method was to have the men verbalize, not once but twice, that who they were looking for was Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, there can be little doubt that the soldiers had intended to arrest Jesus and his entire band of his disciples. The religious leaders' hearts, they intended to crush this rebellion off the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel of the betrayal, Mark chapter 15, verse 41 through 42 records, one of the disciples following Jesus actually had to escape so quickly that he even ran away naked. Yet we are reminded of Jesus' words in John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's why Jesus says in verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. John tells us more specifically in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Brothers and sisters, do you see how even to the end, and you will see even to the end, Jesus protecting his own, 
even in his own betrayal, even in his own rejection, even when he himself is denied, even when he is abandoned by all, Jesus protects his own and he keeps his word as he had promised in John chapter 6, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And as he prayed in John 17, 12, while I was still with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. Martin Luther says of this account, the protection of Jesus' disciples was the greatest miracle of all that happened in Gethsemane. The truth is, brothers and sisters, the disciples all should have been arrested by association. They were guilty by association. But you see, God had another purpose for them, to preserve them. John says again in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, and the disciples ought not to have been surprised, for Jesus had warned them many times. In John chapter 8, verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In another occasion, Jesus had already told the disciples in John 13, 19, and again in John 14, 29, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. But you know what's so hilarious? Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word. Laughable is the idea. Embarrassing, cringy even, sad, pathetic maybe. Look at verse 10. These disciples were warned by Jesus of what was going to happen. But Simon Peter, here in this verse, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Here, impulsive and emotional Peter acting again without thinking, as he always did. And he is immediately rebuked by Jesus in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? John Kelvin, the great reformer, says of this, no thanks to Peter that Christ was not kept from death and that his name was not a perpetual disgrace. Peter's rash actions could have destroyed the church, the New Testament church. If the disciples, along with Jesus, had all been arrested, we would not be here today. At any rate, Jesus miraculously heals Malchus's ear, proving he is merciful to the end, proving again he is no mere man. But the story must go on. Verse 12 says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Brothers and sisters, take a minute to soak in all that's going on. One commentator writes, This divine poetry shows what was about to take place was not beyond the control of God, regardless of how it appeared. You see, Jesus is being betrayed. He's being bound up in chains, yet Jesus is fully and sovereignly in control as he submits himself to the Father's will. And I love that phrase at the end of verse 11. When Jesus says to Peter, look again at verse 11 at the end, it says this. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There's so much rich theology in that verse alone, but let me just say, the cup that the Father, that Jesus was about to drink, is a reference to Isaiah 51. You should write this verse down. Isaiah 51, verse 21 through 22. It was a prophecy of the Messiah and a promise to his chosen elect of this very night. Isaiah 51, verse 21 through 22 says this, Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. 
From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. Brothers and sisters, the cup of suffering referenced in these verses and in Jeremiah 25, 15 through 29 and in Psalm 75 verse 8 and Matthew 20 uh, verse 22 and Matthew 26, 39. The cup that Jesus pled, the Father in Gethsemane, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This cup is the wrath of God reserved for sinners like you and me for our rebellion against God. D.A. Carson says, Jesus is not a pathetic martyr, buffeted by his ill winds of a cruel fate, but voluntarily and purposefully he heads towards his death in full knowledge of what is about to befall him. But again, brothers and sisters, the all-important question is why? Why must the sinless son drink this cup? What has he done wrong? What has he said that was false? Which leads us to our next point. Point number three, Jesus is falsely accused, yet his substitute death is predestined. Jesus is falsely accused, yet his substitute death is predestined. Look with me to those verses 13 through 18 again. It says this. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciples. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. There's a lot of details that could be covered from those verses, but the structure of the passage has a purpose. We know because John had told us what is written has a specific purpose in this book, in this gospel. So I want to address the glaring two major highlights from those verses. First, the failure of the Jewish leaders of God's own teachers and keepers of the law. And second, the failure of Peter, Jesus' closest disciple. Two failures. So first, the failure of the Jewish leaders. Now we can talk about Annas and Caiaphas and their relationships, but really what's important were that they were people in real time around AD 6 through 15 who held significant positions of power. And they were supposed to be the ones. They were supposed to be the religious leaders and teachers and keepers of God's law for God's people. They were the high priests, the mediators of the worship of God. But notice how they were so stuck in the minute details of the law. Read about it in John chapter 18, verse 28, and John 19, 7. That they failed to understand how the law actually pointed to Jesus, the Messiah. They only got a piece, but they did not get the full point. And it was to them Jesus had indicted. In John 5, verse 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, it is the word of God that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They would not have it. They would not even consider it. That's why in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. In their minds, 
It was already determined. Jesus didn't even stand a chance. His death was predetermined. Jesus had no chance whatsoever for a fair trial. It was mob lynching, kill Jesus, and crush the rebellion. Expediency was their aim. Someone had to be blamed. Someone had to take the fault and set as an example and made a deterrent. Don't mess with our authority. Don't you dare. That's what they were saying. Someone had to be the scapegoat. Well, again, isn't this a great irony? Talk about flipping the script, if you will, that Jesus would become the scapegoat. You see, in Jewish tradition, on the Day of Atonement, a day for God's people to reflect on their sins and ask for forgiveness, Leviticus chapter 16, 7 through 10, tells us of how two goats would be taken and presented before the Lord. And a lot would be cast for the goats, one lot for the Lord for sacrifice as sin offering, and the other to be the scapegoat, to be presented alive before the Lord, used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And so here again is a symbol that Jesus would be our scapegoat to bear our blame and to carry the sins of his people. As Caiaphas predetermined it would be expedient that one man should die for his people, God had another plan a predestined plan for Jesus Christ to be the scapegoat for our sins. So that's the religious leaders, but how about Peter's failure? Even more than what he has done thus far, almost getting arrested. Here in these verses, John introduces us to Peter's first denial, just as Jesus had predicted in John chapter 13, 28. Do you remember the reaction that Peter had when Jesus told Peter, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows? What did Peter say? Never, Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. And we know from Scripture, Peter eventually does lay down his life, but not without these events of chapters 18 through 21. That's the point. Look how the Scripture is so clear to present to us Peter was not the reason why he becomes such an influential figure in the early establishment of the Christian faith. How Peter is so far from being the stable and sturdy rock upon which Jesus would build his church. We see Peter in a matter of hours from, I will lay down my whole life for you to sword-wielding Peter to make matters, to take matters in his own hands, hiding in a distance away from Jesus, eventually denying Jesus. Look at verse 17, even denying Jesus to a lowly servant girl. It wasn't even like he was put on trial to a lowly servant girl. He says, I don't know him, three times. So in contrast to Jesus' I am he, I am he, I am he, Peter's I am not, I am not, I am not, rings piercingly biting and bitter on that cold, dark night of Jesus' betrayal. Brothers and sisters, I hope you clearly get the picture. I pray that you would grasp the gravity of this event. You see, what we must see in Judas and the soldiers and the Pharisees and Annas and Caiaphas and Peter is actually you and me misplaced, misled, mistaken, and misstepping. Jesus was falsely accused, but more so he was predestined. For it was forewritten. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. The good news that the holy, righteous, loving, and just creator God laid upon his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, the iniquity of us all. And this is because, as the scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single person to his own way, like Judas, like Annas, like Caiaphas, like Peter, knowingly or unknowingly, mistakenly or intentionally, we have failed completely at trusting and obeying God's word, which ironically is the only thing that saves us from our own wretched selves and others and from God's just wrath reserved for sinners like you and me. And that's why the word of God, the word of God became flesh, according to John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, and dwelt among us. Jesus lived the sinless life that we could not live. Jesus died the substitute death that we should have died on the cross. And Jesus suffered the just punishment we would have suffered in eternal hell. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He became the scapegoat to make atonement for our sins. He became the Lamb of God, sacrificed to wash away our sins. And so by his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. But dear beloved, the good news is good news, not because he died, but because he died and rose again. Hallelujah. On the third day, just as he said he would, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep that he may take it up again. Hallelujah. That by his resurrection, we may have new life. That by his returning, we may have eternal life. Hallelujah. Scripture says everyone who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. So friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, do not hesitate. Do not delay. Do not let this day pass without calling on the great I am. He invites you. He accepts you. He forgives you. He gave his life for you. Surrender to him. Stake your bets on him. He will not fail you. He will not disappoint you. He will love you and keep you to the end. Because otherwise, your just punishment remains on you. The right sentence of your rebellion against him, you being your own God, is the rejection of his son. So friend, humble yourself today before this gracious and mighty king. Repent of your sins. That means to turn from your sins. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. Ask him to give you faith and trust him with your whole life today and forevermore. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, talk to a pastor at any of the doors at the close of service or anyone smiling next to you. We would love to talk to you about how you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. Fourth and final hopeful irony and encouragement to all believers. Point number four, Jesus is denied, yet his promises are fulfilled from verses 19 through 27. The point of these verses is that Jesus protects his own to the end. Notice how in verse 19, the high priest questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. In the following verses, Jesus mentions nothing, nothing about his disciples. He doesn't throw them under the bus, you see. It's Jesus' way of protecting his disciples because he, again, has a greater purpose for them, which we know is ultimately to proclaim the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to all and establish the church. We will get there. But for now, they have all scattered in fear for their own lives. Not a single one of them. It's a sad situation, brothers and sisters. Not a single one of them steps up to protect their master, yet Jesus doesn't turn on them. Someone noticed an EMP and asked at our early morning prayer in these verses, Jesus doesn't remain silent, which is kind of surprising actually, right? Here seems a bit defensive even in these verses, in the way that Jesus responds to them in verse 20. But the point is this, that Jesus is entirely innocent 
Jesus is entirely innocent. He has only spoken truth. Jesus had done and said nothing in secret. Various times, in various ways, he has taught in clear view of all in the temples. He had no hidden ploy whatsoever. And if the leaders were truly threatened that they would lose control, that if a revolution would rise up by Jesus' followers, then the Romans would overthrow their leadership as according to John chapter eleven forty eight, where their claims were utterly unfounded because their accusations were baseless for Jesus was deserted even by his closest friends. There was nobody backing up Jesus for a revolution, you see. We see this as John returns to Peter's second and third denials structurally to cement this reality, the apparent reality of the situation. Jesus seems to have failed. He is falsely accused and appears powerless as he stands bound in front of those who will now resort to, because they can, the physical abuse. They are absent of any desire whatsoever to hear Jesus' cause, case whatsoever. They don't have sound judgment, you see. And his disciples won't stand up for him. All those who followed him are watching as bystanders, silent, Well, on the morning after the Passover meal, we have a picture of human failure and human inability to stand by Christ. That is certain. Yet you know what is amazing about this text? The most amazing thing about this text, even at the end of such seeming tragedy, there's more gruesome failure of humans to come in these next chapters, right? But come on. In these verses, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, two of his disciples, the failure of his own people, God's leaders, it's pretty depressing. Yet, a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. Verse 27. Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to grow. What Jesus foretold happened. Jesus is denied. Yet his word is fulfilled. Jesus is denied. Yet his word is fulfilled. As we conclude Consider what the betrayal of Jesus in Gethsemane teaches us. A.W. Pink, a theologian, says this. The entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrasts between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Adam, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. In conflict, in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged by night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of them whom you've given me, I lost none. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Edom, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven out. From Gethsemane, Christ was led in. In Eden, the sword was drawn out. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. Sin, death, And judgment flowed from the act of Eden. But righteousness, life, and kingdom flowed from the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, aren't you thankful for the sanctifying ironies in our lives? In Christ, there is joy in the midst of sorrow. In Christ, there is hope in the midst of seeming hopelessness. 
In Christ, suffering sanctifies us. In Christ, death is not the end. In Christ, death is just a pathway to abundant life and eternal life. So, dear beloved, look to Christ. Cast your cares on Christ. Hope in Christ. Trust in Christ. Persevere in Christ. Share Christ. Be happy in Christ. For Christ is all. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, may we remember his sacrifice on our behalf. We live, we live because he was betrayed, bound, accused, and denied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder that by your death we live, that by your sacrifice we are washed and healed and made new. Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper in this monthly covenant meal, Father, we remember your sacrifice. Be honored and be glorified in the humble, sincere worship of your people. We claim to be here not because of our own works, but because of your grace, because of what you have done in Christ on the cross and by your resurrection. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.